The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by David Marcus, who is a columnist and author and author of a book called Charade, Charade, depending on whether you're British or American, The Covid Lies That Crushed a Nation. David, thank you very much for coming to Americana. I'd like to talk to you about the midterms because that is the sort of big story that Americans and British people are talking about in terms of politics. But I also want to talk to you about your latest column for Newsweek, which is about black anti-Semitism, which has been in the news quite a lot this week because of Kanye West, who has said some fairly anti-Semitic things on social media and got in a lot of trouble for it, and a basketball player called Kiri Irving, who's in similar boat, This is quite an interesting phenomenon in American life, is it not, David, that there is what seems to be quite a lot of anti-Semitism among black Americans, among African Americans, but it's also an odd kind of anti-Semitism because they also think that they're Jewish. They think that black people are the true Hebrews. Yeah, look, this isn't a new problem, but it's definitely one that people do not like to talk about. In, In the column, I refer to it as the most dangerous third rail in our political discourse, and and it really is. I live in Brooklyn, in New York. Now, New York City has a million Jews who live here. That's twice as many as any other city in the world. The second is Jerusalem. So, I mean, this is this is where more Jews live than anywhere, and they live in very close proximity to traditionally black neighborhoods. And in in the late '80s, we had the Crown Heights riots. Right, Al Sharpton was sort of involved in that. There's been a long simmering sort of animosity, especially between the Orthodox community and the black community. And I think the reason I wrote the column and what's important is that Kyrie Irving and Kanye West, they're not learning these conspiracy theories about Jews in a vacuum. There are groups like the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan. There are groups, as, as you mentioned, like the Hebrew Israelites who claim that black people are are the actual Jews, who really foster a lot of very ancient conspiracy theories about Jews and, and ask questions like, you know, why are there so many Jewish bankers and so many people in entertainment? And what I argue in the column is that we aren't doing a good enough job explaining that there are perfectly non-nefarious reasons for that, that, that really go back into history. And the fact that Jews couldn't own land and, and, and went to more liquid forms of, of wealth and income, there's a history here that should be taught. It's not being taught, and in that vacuum, some awful conspiracy theories are able to grow. Mm. Well, and Kanye West's father, I think, was a Black Panther, and in a lot of the sort of black rights movement that came up in the 60s and 70s, there was this sense of a terrible evil conspiracy at the top to keep down black people, and that transposes quite easily onto conspiracy theories about Jewish people, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, you know, that's how that happened. And it's really a shame because at the dawn of the civil rights movement, blacks and Jews really worked together hand in hand. I mean, there were, there were you know, Jewish people being killed in the South trying to, to fight for the right, you know, for, for black people to vote. 
And unfortunately, that that did sort of get turned on its head. And you're right. The other thing that's interesting about this, though, when you listen to Kanye, one of the things that he's saying, and I think maybe Irving as well, is there's there's almost a kind of admiration within the conspiracy, right? There's almost a sense of like, the Jews take care of their own. They were able to build this. Black people need to do that, right? The undercurrent is like, why is my business manager a Jewish guy and not a black guy? And so, I mean, it can be a very toxic cocktail, but the only way to deal with it is to have really honest and forthright conversations. And that's not something that people are particularly interested in right now. Tell us a little bit about black Israelite thinking, because they, they claim that every sort of genius in history was, was a black person, which touches on what you're saying, that they must be getting something right about that's where the anti-Semitism comes in. But also it's this idea that black people have always been part of some great revolution. It's always been suppressed. What we know about the black Israelites here in New York is that, like, if you go to Times Square, or you go to, like, certain busy street corners, they kind of, like, you know, scream the Bible and, like, shout at people. And, you know, you'll often have, like, like people who walk by and, and get offended and you see these sort of, like, shouting matches and stuff. You know, that's mostly how they appear within civic life in the United States. But they do have a following within the black community. They, you know, as does the nation of Islam, as do other groups that espouse some of these conspiracy theories. You know, I'm not well versed enough in their version of historical events to understand why they believe what they believe, but it's important that, that we educate, you know, especially, you know, kids and, you know, really everybody and have outreach to, to explain just how wrong all of these ideas really are. Well, I think that's probably enough on the, the third rail, as you call it, of, of American <laughs> politics. But uh, it's a very interesting subject. I also wanted to talk to you about the midterms, which has been the subject of our last few podcasts, but it is nonetheless the story of the moment. And I wanted to talk to you about New York because you have an extraordinary situation in New York where the governor's race is surprisingly close. It looks to me like the Republicans will not win it, but you have a situation where New York is in play politically, which is an extraordinary eventuality, is it not? Yeah, and I'm going to disagree with you. I think the Republican Lee Zeldin will. You think Lee Zeldin will, will win? I do. I mean, I think when you look at the fact that Kathy Hochul was up 25 points two months ago, and today it's a dead heat, and New York is not a state that has a ton of early voting, I think everything is moving in his direction. And just anecdotally, but it's not anecdotally, I have a problem with the way the media deals with polls, right? I'm a very old school columnist. I actually still go to diners and bars and talk to people on the subway and talk to people on the street. I was a wonderful columnist here in the United States named Selena Zito, who, who does that all the time, right? Back in 2016, when everybody said there's no chance Trump wins, Selena Zito went into what we call flyover country and just started talking to people. And she said, wait a minute. This guy's got a chance. And everybody said, not only did they say, you're wrong, they accused her of fabricating sources. Yeah. They said, these people don't exist. Was it Selena Zito who came up with the, the famous line that they're literally not? Yes, that Trump's detractors take him literally, but not seriously, and his supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that, a genius that, insight. Yeah. And, and it's genius insight. And, and she's one of my great mentors because that's how you do the job. Right. You don't sit in your house and like construct polls, polls. You can only find what you're looking for in a poll. 
Yeah. Someone that you talk to can give you a new insight that you never understood before. And so that's what I'm seeing in New York. And what's very important about whether Lee Zeldin wins or loses, the fact that this is a tight race, what's fascinating about it is that there are five Democratic House seats, House seats held by Democrats, that they're trying to hold on to here in New York. And Lee Zeldin's going to have coattails. One of those, not for nothing, is a seat held by a guy named Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the head of the Democratic, the the DCCC, the the Democratic Committee in Congress that's meant to elect more Democrats. His seat's in jeopardy, right? They're having to spend money on his seat. And that has a lot to do with the fact that Zeldin has been able to do this. This is also happening in Michigan, where Gretchen Whitmer was supposed to run away with it, and Tudor Dixon is very close. And the converse is happening in Florida and Georgia. Right. Ron DeSantis is running away with the race. Right. Kemp is running away with the race in Georgia. And that's helping the down ballot there as well. One last thing to add. When you look at New York and Michigan, what are two things about those states and their incumbent governors? They went hard on lockdowns during covid and it really hurt their states. What's true of Florida and Georgia? They opened their states earlier than anybody they have better economic results. They have better education results. They have better results across the board. And I think those governors are being rewarded. That's very interesting because I think what a lot of people have said is that after pandemics happen, historically, people don't want to talk about them. But yet popular rage manifests itself nonetheless. And so it's interesting that lockdowns haven't actually, maybe a bit on the on the right, but lockdowns haven't been a large feature of the public conversation. It's been about the economy, it's been about crime, it's been about abortion. But you're saying that you think anger about lockdowns in a lot of American cities is resulting in a big swing for the Republicans. To some degree, anger, yes, but I don't think it's so much anger. I think this is a much slower story. I I really think it's results. If you're living in Florida or Georgia right now, your state's economy, your state's education system, your state, everything is in better shape because they didn't spend that extra year and a half locked down. Yeah. If you're living in New York or Michigan, things are not in such good shape because those states made the decision to, to stay in lockdown. So I'm not sure it's so much anger. I, I think it's just how do people feel about the competency of their leadership? And as you say, that's not something that comes up in polls. And that's kind of my point about the polls, right? Nobody's asking that question. And it's not an easy one to ask or to have answered. But I think if you feel good about the state of your state, you're more likely to vote for the person who's running it. Well, and I mean, another big factor is is definitely crime. I mean, that, that does poll as a major factor in what voters are thinking about. Do you think there is lingering anger about what happened during lockdown with the Black Lives Matter riots? And do you think that is a factor in a lot of these midterm races? I don't know. I mean, look, the hypocrisy of that moment is arguably the the most stunning thing about the lockdowns. I mean, that moment when we saw tens of thousands of people gathered in protest and you couldn't have a half empty baseball stadium, millions of Americans said, wait a minute what the hell's going on here, right? I mean, it was, it was kind of like, you know, the, the emperor was exposed for having no clothes. Mm. But again, I, I don't think anger or frustration at that moment is what's driving voters. I think that there's a cumulative effect here. And I think that in general, 
the American people right now feel that Republicans are taking a more measured and, and competent approach to how to run the country, to how to run their states than Democrats have. And I think it's hurting Democrats. I think Democrats have gone so far to the left that they almost don't make sense anymore. And we saw, you know, you look at something like the transgender issue and there was a moment from a debate, I believe it was in Washington the other night, and the Democrat candidate was asked, do you think that biological men should play sports, you know, with girls in high school and college? And the answer was incomprehensible, right? It wasn't yes, it wasn't no. It's, oh, well, it's very nuanced and who who can say and what are the hormone levels? And people are frustrated with this from the Democrats. They, they don't answer questions. Yeah. The word gaslit or gaslight is overused, I think, in public conversation. But a lot of independents and independents who, who are displeased with the Democrats or uh, Republicans who are obviously opposed to Democrats, they talk a lot about the Democrats gaslighting Americans. Do you think that's a fair criticism, taking aside the fact that the word gaslighting is slightly irritating sometimes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important to note that gaslighting doesn't mean lying. Gaslighting comes from a play. I I can't remember the name of the play. It was from the 1930s. And the plot of the play is that this man is sort of, you know, psychologically torturing his wife by slowly lowering the gaslights and pretending that nothing's going on. And that's the important aspect of gaslighting is that, again, it's a slow process. And there is this moment of awakening where you're like, wait a minute, I'm not crazy, Mm. right? Like what I'm being told is not true. And it's not just the Democrats. It's also the media. Fascinating poll recently that that showed that 72% of Americans do feel that democracy is under threat, right? About a third of them say it's under threat from Republicans. About a third of them say it's under threat from the Democrats. Some people say the Supreme Court, right? 28%. Something like 80% of those people said that it's under threat from the mainstream media. Yeah. It's the only thing everyone agrees on. Yeah. And I think that's how people are feeling today is that they're just not getting a straight story and they, they really want that. Yeah. But I think people generally associate the media's bias or the media's gaslighting, if you like, with democratic talking points, don't they? And I think they're right to do that. Yes and no. I mean, you, you, you know, you'll hear just as many complaints about Fox News and Tucker, you know, I write for Fox News, so I'm partial. But the reason why there's bipartisan agreement that the mainstream media is a problem is because everybody sort of defines the mainstream media as the other side. Now, yes, you're right. The New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, 90% of the major legacy outlets are on the left. So yes, your, your, your point is well taken. But everyone is feeling this frustration. And if you try to make that point to a Democrat, they're just going to point at Fox News and the New York Post, who I also write for and say, we're just as bad and, and you know, we're the problem. So yeah. it's a problem. Well, a good example of it that people are pointing to is the story of John Fetterman and what happened with his stroke and that the media coverage of him was obviously just covering up the fact that he wasn't or isn't recovered. He's not he's not well. Is that what we're talking about here? Is that why people increasingly feel that the media is just so shambolically fraudulent? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was an NBC reporter named um, Dana Burns, I believe her name was, and she had the first one-on-one sit-down with Fetterman, and she reported that, look, we small talk was a problem, Yeah, right? He didn't seem to understand. He wasn't able to engage in it. And 
her own network and tons of, of people on the left really threw her under the bus. And they were like, no, that's not true. That's not going on. And, and it was true. And then when we all saw that debate, we all knew it was true. Mm. I, I think the problem for Fetterman right now is that he can't be held accountable for anything he says. Right. <laughs> I mean, if, if John Fetterman says something crazy, they can say, oh, well, that was the stroke. I mean, right. That's a problem. And, and we have to be able to talk about that. Part of being a politician is being able to hold a conversation. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, if that sounds ableist, then it's ableist. It's just it's part of the job. Right. You can't be a blind fighter pilot. I, you know, like- it's undeniably true. And, I, and it's an odd reflection. Obviously, having a stroke and senility are, are different things or, or the fading of Biden's mental faculties. But it, it's an odd reflection of the president who himself goes around saying all these things. And then for a long time, I think now people are sort of beginning to accept that it's OK to say that Biden is very old and his mental faculties are fading. But for a long time, it was seen as somehow offensive or certainly a right-wing talking point to talk about Biden's declining mental health. And and Fetterman is an interesting parallel with that, is it not? Yeah, I mean, the most fun I've had writing over the past month or so is the New York Post asked me to write a satirical piece that was a fictional oh, yeah. conversation between Biden and Fetterman. Yeah, I read that. You know, it, it was just kind of fun to imagine because it's like, let's get ready to mumble, right? Like, it's just nonsense back and forth. Yeah, look, I've laid off the Biden faculty stuff because I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Donald Trump, you know, slipping on a on a staircase meant like, you know, he was he had had a stroke. Right. Or or Donald Trump being psychoanalyzed by people who had never met him on the media. So, you know, I'm not nuts about that in general. But yeah, look, you you look at video from Biden even two years ago and it is what it is. That's really all I can say about it. We all see it. Yes. Tell me more broadly about what your understanding of how Americans feel about Joe Biden at the moment. Because actually, I think Republicans, right-wingers, Fox News viewers, Fox News pundits, never quite understood Joe Biden's appeal. And he, does, he did actually have an appeal. But tell me your understanding of how Americans feel about Joe Biden now compared to how they did in 2020. I agree with you that Joe Biden had an appeal. And I think that what Joe Biden's appeal was that he was supposed to just be a manager. Yeah. Right. There's two kinds of American presidents. There are cult of personality presidents and there are managerial presidents. Right. Ronald Reagan's a cult of personality president. Right. JFK, FDR. These are, you know, Truman's a managerial president. Bill Clinton was a managerial president. One way to think about this is if Americans would have a picture of a president on their wall at home while they're president, right? That would be true of JFK. That would be true. Nobody had a picture of Bill Clinton on their wall in 1996. That would have been like extremely weird. (laughs) For the first time ever, I think, maybe ever, the United States had back-to-back cult of personality presidents in Barack Obama and Donald Trump. These were both big figures who people loved. They had emotional investment in them. And I think that at the end of those 12 years, Americans were ready for a manager. Like, I don't want to love the president. I don't want to talk about him every day. Just do your job. Yeah. And I think that's what they wanted Joe Biden to be. And unfortunately, he, you know, for a lot of reasons, he hasn't been able to be that. Yeah. I suppose a lot of people thought that he would bring normalcy, as he and others called it, and the results have not been very normal. Yeah, no, I, and I think it does have to do with 
the fact that progressives have just sort of institutionally captured the Democratic Party and, and all of the, you know, all of the issues where you'd expect Biden to sort of be a moderating voice. He's not right. I mean, he goes out there and calls the Georgia voting law Jim Crow 2.0. Georgia's breaking voting records. Yeah. Right. Th- that's not what Joe Biden was elected to do. Joe Biden was elected to say, all right, let's calm down. There can be reasonable restrictions. You know, there, there can also be greater access. Let's figure this out like adults. And, you know, he's out there ranting and raving like he's AOC or a, or a member of the squad. Yeah. It's a huge mistake. And I don't understand it. Well, let's talk about Georgia, because that's quite an interesting one. Herschel Walker has now pulled ahead. And he is obviously a very flawed candidate in many ways, but perhaps not as hopeless as a lot of people thought he was. Is that fair to say? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know to what extent the British listeners will, will know the, the football context of Herschel Walker, but he was, of course, a great running back for the University of Georgia and, and, and sort of like a, a very known a very known figure in that state. I don't think anybody's voting for Herschel Walker because they think he's a great statesman, right? I think that you're voting for Herschel Walker probably because you want Republicans to control the Senate mm. and he's going to be a loyal vote. Now, a loyal vote for Mitch McConnell or a loyal vote for Donald Trump, those might not be the same thing. Yeah. And we'll see how that works out if he wins, right? I think it's similar to Pennsylvania where you have Dr. Oz, who's this sort of like, you know, TV star, doctor or whatever. And the expectation was that his celebrity would help him. I'm not I'm not sure that it has a lot. I, I He's doing much better now. And I and I, and I think he's likely to, to beat Fetterman. But in both these cases, voters don't seem particularly awed or impressed by the celebrity nature of the candidates. But somebody who does seem quite impressed by celebrity nature candidates is Donald Trump himself who is the big endorser. And Trump last night said he's very, 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 I think it was three verys, three very probably going to do it again, to have another go at the, the, the White House. It seems very likely that he will. And a big conversation in American politics has been the extent of the Trumpist takeover of the Republican Party. I mean, someone like Herschel Walker is a very good example of the Trumpist takeover. So is Mehmet Oz, a very good example of the, the Trumpist takeover of the Republican Party. It's just happened, hasn't it? It's just, it's, it's irreversible now. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it Trumpist, although I think it's fair to call it that because he certainly was the, the guy who kicked the door open, right? But I've long argued that Trump's politics, main politics and policies that now constitute what we call the new right here in the United States and, and other places in the Anglosphere, right? We talk about this new right, these are rooted back with guys like Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan in the, in the 1990s Reform Party. In fact, first votes Donald Trump ever got for president were in 2000 on the Reform Party ticket, where he won California and Michigan before dropping out. A lot of people don't remember that. And to block Pat Buchanan, wasn't it? It was, yes, yes. But so there's, there's four main planks of the new right that everyone agrees on. There's a lot of factions. There's a lot of different groups. Four things everyone agrees on. Have to secure the border. You have to have energy independence. You can't have these bad globalist trade deals. And you have to aggressively fight the culture war, which is education, CRT, trans stuff, all that stuff, right? Those are the four central planks that have, in fact, taken over the Republican Party. So whether your name is Trump or whether your name is DeSantis, 
these are the issues. There's no room for Liz Cheney anymore. That's over. Yeah. I'm often intrigued what's going to happen to people like Liz Cheney because, I mean, their home is now the Democratic Party, is it not? But they will never go there because they're too useful to the Democratic Party as disaffected Republicans, right? What becomes of people like that? I don't know. They, they get columns in the Washington Post. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I, I mean, I was a never-Trumper, right, in 2016. I, that guy scared me to death, mm. right? I was, the Wall Street Journal, in fact, referred to me as like one of the you know, big never-Trumpers or something back in 2016. And I was. I wrote at the Federalist at the time. We all were, for the most part, right? Molly Hemingway, Ben Dominic. We were all worried yeah. about Trump. You know, about six, seven, eight months in, I said, sky's not falling. I actually like a lot of what's happening. And I came around. It took me a little longer than some people. It took other people longer than me. Some people never have. I respect those people. I don't get angry about the fact that the Atlantic magazine, you know, wants to run their stuff. But where I think that CNN and the Atlantic and New York Times and all these places do their readers a disservice is by pretending that these people have any constituency among voters because they don't, right? They have a constituency in boardrooms. They have a constituency in C-suites and at the Chamber of Commerce. They don't have a constituency among voters. And unfortunately, readers of the New York Times and people who watch CNN are not seeing anyone who accurately represents the half of the country that is conservative. Well, that goes back to something on Americanos during the Trump years that we talked about a lot, which is, has America hardened into a class system in the way that perhaps Britain was in the 19th century, where you have an elite that talk only to themselves, that do not understand what most Americans are thinking, and the more that they exist like that, the harder they become in their opinions. Yes, I think that's fair. You know, Charles Murray has done some really good work on this, written a couple books about this question of the class divide. One of the things that he talks about that I find fascinating is that even going back to like the 1980s, right, the the sort of, if you watch a John Hughes movie about kids in high school in, in Ohio, right, the doctor and the lawyer's son who drives the Porsche to school is at the same school as the plumbers and the alcoholic dad. And Right. Everybody sort of they all went to church together. There was a common civic life that existed across class lines. We have less and less of that now in the United States. And so, yeah, I, I think there is a sorting where people of different class levels aren't exposed to each other. And it's, it's toxic for society. And so uh, looking ahead, let's say on Tuesday night, the Democrats do get the, the shellacking, the thrashing. They lose the Senate and the House. Do you anticipate, I don't want to force people to make predictions, but I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. Do you anticipate that Biden will still say, I'm going to run in 2024? Will he run against Donald Trump? What do you think is going to happen? I think there will be an enormous amount of pressure for him not to run. The biggest question about the Biden administration is who's running it. Nobody knows. It's clearly not Joe Biden, right? Is it Valerie Jarrett? Is it Barack Obama? Nobody knows. Nobody knows why this administration is making the choices that it is, why it is so incredibly unsusceptible to public opinion. It doesn't matter how low his numbers go. They don't change. They don't pivot. Mm. So that would be the person to ask, not me. There's going to be a lot of pressure, right? Gavin Newsom wants to run for president. Andrew Cuomo 
might <laughs> want to run. I'm not kidding, right? Because no one's occupying this middle lane. Yeah. Right. Andrew Cuomo's already started saying like, oh, the Democrats have gone too far left. No one's there. There are people who are going to want to do this. I don't know who holds the power in the Democratic Party right now. I'm not sure that anybody does know. And they're the, pe- you know, they're the people who will decide what Biden's going to do. Yeah. Well, David Marcus, I do hope you'll come on to the Americano podcast again. It's been a great pleasure to have you on. Oh, this is a blast. Thanks, man. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.